Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. Now before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, earth-grown, evidence-based nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and interflow quickly is Genius Mode. Now, it took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up and the focus and the drive and the motivation and the mental clarity lasts me all day. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any other subscription discounts that you get on the BrainFirst website. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy, my friends. In this episode... Dr. Rick Hansen joins the show. Rick is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and New York Times bestselling author. His books are available in 28 languages and include Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nurture. A founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, he's been an invited speaker at Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and other major universities and taught in meditation centers worldwide. His Foundations of Wellbeing program has been designed to help you change your brain for the better, for lasting happiness, confidence, and peace of mind. Rick, welcome to the show. Ramon, it's great to talk with you again, a fellow kindred spirit and brain enthusiast. Absolutely. Now, uh, many of our listeners will know your work, but for those who don't know you, how did you become the, can I call you the well-being guy? You're certainly my well-being guy. <laughs> How did you become the well-being guy? That's a funny way to put it. Well, I think <laughs> no. of, if I could just add one word, one yeah, word yeah, yeah. it would be the resilient well-being guy. Nice. Because if you don't have resilience in a changing and challenging world, you can't sustain well-being. So for me, the two come together, uh, a kind of an inner grit and strength that enables us to rest truly in a fundamental sense of happiness, love, and inner peace. That really is what I mean by well-being. And then that well-being, as we internalize it and hardwire it into our brain, as we hardwire uh, happiness, love, and inner peace into our brain, we become stronger. We become more able to you know, manage trauma, loss, and difficulty. In a word, we become more resilient. So resilience and well-being feed each other. In a wonderful upward spiral. And I got interested in it because I'm in the trenches. I'm a real guy. You know, I'm a psychologist, uh, in longtime meditation teacher. I'm a husband for 38 years, a father for 32 plus years, you know, in the real world. And I'm deeply interested in the kind of strengths people can grow from the inside out that stick to us, that stay with us, not some sort of quick fix, pop psych, you know, razzmatazz, uh, magic bullet, forget about it. None of that stuff works. It's the good that lasts that I focus on how to grow in your brain and your life. Mm. 
And I think that's something that we're definitely going to get into, I think a little bit into the episode. How can we make these uh, changes in the brain so that this stuff lasts, right? It sticks. Uh, we're going to be talking about your book, Resilient. Uh, you do have another book coming out soon. And I know you've written quite a few books. And I know some of our audience, I'm certainly interested in this. And I know some of our audience is certainly going to be interested in this. A little bit off topic. What's your process for writing books? Because yeah. it's tough uh, to write one, let alone um, what are you up to? Six. <laughs> Six so what's what's crazy. the what's the process? What's the routine? How do you manage that in this crazy modern world with notifications going off all the time and yeah. uh, and all these sorts of demands? I'd say probably three things. Uh, one, have something to say. You know, quality counts, and uh, in the world of the internet, content is king or queen, right? You need to have something to say. Second, I got great advice from this grizzled, kind of an asshole, New York editor <laughs> 25 years ago, but this was definitely the voice of experience. He said, Rick, it's like in real estate, there are three things that matter, location, location, location. In nonfiction writing, there are three things that matter, structure, structure, structure. Structure is your friend. It's not a trap. It's actually liberating to have structure. And so think of the structure you're doing and how things fit together, really important. And then the third key is to add up little things. 15 minutes a day, an hour a day of writing. Uh, can you write two pages? Can you generate 500 words? Well, if you can generate two pages times 100, that's a book, bingo. That's your book right there. And I mean, so if you break it down and you just keep at it, that's really important. You know, you repurpose stuff. If you're gonna give a little talk or you're gonna, I don't know, create a little handout or have a thing on your website. Think about how you can integrate that into your emerging book. So increasingly you're generating the first drafts of sections of chapters of a book. Uh, that's it. And stay with it. Oh, mm. last one. Mm. Message in a bottle. You got to realize there are several hundred thousand books published in English every year. And you cannot control what the market does, you cannot control the timing, you cannot control weird stuff your publisher does, you just can't control it. But what you can control is your own message in that bottle. And to me, that has a dignity and a nobility to it. You do the best you can. You sing the song that is yours to sing, and after that, it's out of your hands. So there's a sense of responsibility with that. You gotta do it yourself. On the other hand, there's a sense of inner peace. You make your offering sincerely with a whole heart and don't get too uptight about how many five-star reviews you get on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's one of the uh, the ideas I really want to talk about a bit later, which is this idea of aspiring without attachment. You bet. Make your offering without being uptight about the results. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I think when you mentioned structure before in terms of uh, writing the book, I think this is your book, Resilient is probably one of the most well-structured books I think I've ever come across. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about that? Because the model, the framework uh, that kind of is the foundation of the book has a number of components uh, that seem to be drawn from psychology and from the neuroscience as well. Can you talk a little bit about those? Oh, sure. 
Um, so I write in a self-help space. I'm not doing memoir. I'm not doing political analysis, although I have my personal opinions. I'll spare you them. Uh, I do self-help. Okay, great. So in a self-help frame, we work backwards from what's the result. For me, the overarching result is resilient well-being. And there are levels of that. One level is just getting through a day that's crazy. And that itself is admirable. And then the upper end of the range of resilient well-being starts moving into self-actualization, peak experiences, for some spiritual practice, awakening altogether. It's the full spectrum. So I kind of work in that spectrum. So I work backwards from the result, you know, and so I, for a reader of Resilient, um, I think as the subtitle says, uh, I forget it, uh, you know, the new brain science of, you know, calm, confidence, contentment, something like that. Anyway, right? So I work backwards from there. Yep. My, my, my copy doesn't have that on here. Oh, don't even <laughs> Unfortunately. worry about it. You, the, you, you have the UK market, uh, uh, Australia, okay. New Zealand copy, uh, right. version of that. Yeah, that's the deal. So um, first point. Second, uh, if we're going to be resilient, if we're going to have well-being, we have to meet our needs. So that gives us structure. What are our needs and what are the strengths we need to meet our needs? Yeah? Instant structure. So for me, our needs fall into three major categories. This is standard biology, standard psychology, needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, broadly defined, managed by avoiding harms, approaching rewards, and attaching to others. That creates structure. Yay, I love structure, because then I can work inside it. You know, it helps me. It's like a map, you know. We're not just swirling in space. And so then in terms of meeting those needs, I identified 12 strengths, four fundamental strengths, one for each need, four times three is 12. And that then gave me the 12 chapters of the book. Bingo. Easy, easy done. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And so then we get into the details of what are those strengths and so forth. But, uh, you know, I think that when people... Right. Um, you need to take the swirl and boil it down. And you, it's just sorting. It's like you walk into your kitchen. It's a total mess. Okay, you got to start sorting stuff into piles. My garage right now is insane. I'm going to organize it this weekend, and which starts with clearing out a bunch of crud. So you start sorting, you know, the good stuff, the bad stuff, and then what are the piles it fits into? And then suddenly you work with those and those become your chapters. And, you're off and running. And I think it's out of respect for a reader as well. And readers like different things. Me, I'm a takeaways kind of guy. Uh, some people love to read these long, rambling, personal stories of you know, wandering through the ages and went to India. And I'm like, come on, man. What's the takeaway? What's the give bottom me, line? Give me the stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't where think are the goods? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, you know, like, what, what, give me the need to know. That's what I want to know. So me, I... I try to respect people. And also these days, man, bite size. People want bite size. Yeah. I try to respect that. You know, tell me, I want to tell people things they don't already know about what they can do to be happier, stronger, wiser, more loving, you know, and so forth. And then it's on them. Do they actually use it? And I'm a longtime therapist. And it's made me, I think, more compassionate and kind. But it's also made me tougher in a certain way. And, it, and blunter about the need for personal practice. The good news is that five minutes a day of engaged experiential practice one way or another will make a big difference in your brain that will add up in how you feel 
really quickly. But it's astonishing the number of people, you, you know this, Ramon, who will not give it five minutes a day. They want that happy result, right? Yeah. Want to know how to talk to people better. They want to be not so shadowed by their childhood. They, they want to have that kind of fundamental core of well-being and contentment inside. But they won't spend five minutes a day getting good at that. Even though they'll spend half an hour a day working on their putting game or channel surfing, stupid TV, but they won't spend five minutes a day usually marinating in positive experiences to grow lasting inner strengths inside. Really well, interesting. Why do you think that is? I think part of it's the times we live in. People are just sort of honestly trained from early childhood to be passive receivers mm. of packaged bits of shiny objects kind of handed to them. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that I think for a lot of people, they don't have a strong sense of being a friend of themselves, of being an ally, you know, like a, like a kind of tough-minded, blunt, but well-intended friend with themselves. Like I've had friends in my life in different settings who have said essentially, Rick, you're awesome. Now quit whining and start climbing. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and we need, so what's that inside ourselves? That's, that's encouraging. Yo, this totally sucks. Ugh. All right, what are we going to do? You know, we need to have that part inside ourselves. And so that's actually, as you know from the book, that's the first thing we work on. Having compassion for yourself, acknowledging where it's hard, and then big breath, get on your own side. What are you going to do about it? How can you help yourself? Whatever happened in the past sucks, and it's in the past. All right, today, what can you learn? What can you get a little better at? What can you get a little more at peace about? So that when you go to bed, you're a little stronger and wiser than when you woke up in the morning. You know? And I think people lack that, and, and they lack it for different reasons. One is because what they have internalized from other people is harsh criticism or scolding or scorn or dismissal. And they do that to themselves. I mean, that's kind of our nature to do to ourselves what other people did to us, especially when we were young. Um, that's, a, that's a factor as well. So bottom line, um, if we, like Rabbi Hillel wrote, I guess, a long time ago, if you're not for yourself, who will be? And if not now, when? I think a lot of the people that I speak to think that to really have the happy, meaningful life that they want, that they may need to address past traumas, you know, address their fears, address these sometimes difficult to face things. But one of the things that I take away from your work, and particularly in this book, because it is packed full of practical, useful things, is that that's not necessarily the case. We can, of course, make great strides in our well-being by focusing on the positive things, by building these inner resources, inner strengths. And you mentioned compassion as the really the first step. How, how can people go, like, so for our listeners, someone who is listening to this and thinking, look, I'm not ready to deal with some past traumatic experience, but I really want to take the first step here to improving my well-being. How can I be more compassionate? 
Like what's a real practical thing that I can do on a daily, daily basis? I love how you're framing this, Ramon. And to use a metaphor, uh, if the mind is like a garden, we can pull weeds or plant flowers. And yeah. both are important. Yeah. But sometimes people get overly fixated, I think, on trying to pull some weed that's deeply rooted and they just can't get it. And then they you know, struggle with it, struggle with it, and so forth. And meanwhile, every day is full of opportunities that are genuine, even in the middle of a hard, hard life. Real opportunities to plant seeds and then protect them and grow those flowers inside your own mind. And often that's the best place to start because by growing these inner resources of various kinds, including compassion for others, and in particular, compassion for oneself, as we grow these strengths inside, then we're much more able to deal with the weeds and much more freaked out by you know, when we come in contact with them. So with regard to compassion or self-compassion, the how of this is the same how for growing anything else you want to grow, which is two steps that are necessary and sufficient, but you need both of them. First, experience whatever you want to grow. So I can talk about how to have experiences of compassion for yourself. Second, while you're having those experiences, slow down, marinate in them to hardwire them into your brain. Most people skip the second step. They rush on to the next thing. Uh, they have a superficial experience of whatever they want to grow. It, it's not very engaging. It's not rich. It's not full. Uh, and as a result, they have passing experiences of this or that that do not stick to their ribs, which leaves people disheartened, disappointed. They give up. Probably half of the money we spend worldwide on mental health of broadly defined. Psychotherapy, coaching, counseling, mindfulness training, self-compassion training, human resources training, all the things we do to try to help people, you know, manage stress at work, so forth, so forth. It's wasted because there's no lasting value for half the people who go through it, really. Um, maybe even two-thirds of the people don't really get much out of it. There's enough of a difference for the third or half who do get something that you can get statistically significant effects compared to a control group. But... Still, the dirty little secret in self-help and mental health in general is that roughly half of what we do is completely wasted, and that drives me crazy. Why don't we teach people how to work with their own brain from the inside out so the experiences they're having in their own lives, let alone in that one hour a week they go see the therapist or 10 minutes a week they meditate. You know, There are things they can do to actually help them super-duper sink in. So that's the second necessary step of any kind of lasting change. You have to help it land in your body to leave a lasting trace behind. Mm. And uh, guys, this is absolutely, uh, this is one of the things that the neuro, that we've, that we know from the neuroscience. Um, you, you guys have heard me talk about the quantum Zeno effect before and, and, you know, that's potentially as a mechanism of action on the fringe of the neuroscience Maybe it doesn't have all the evidence to back it yet, but we know that the effect is there, right? It's staying with the experience. It's using your attention in a very deliberate way to, um, can we say, turn a state into more of a, a, a lasting trait with yeah. some of these things? Mm -hmm. Well, exactly right. And even in terms of hardcore, uh, very accepted neuroscience, there's that famous phrase, neurons that fire together 
wire together and they literally physically wire together. And there's tremendous amount of research now on humans and non-human animals that um, people can move from states to traits, as you put it, and acquire greater fill in the blank, mindfulness, resilience, self-compassion, uh, generosity for others, happiness altogether. They could totally do it. Uh, for me, there are three keys. Uh, that summarize, I have a lot of material about this, as you know, and a lot mm -hmm. of details, a lot of applications for different groups, different issues, but, but it really boils down to more often than not doing one of three things and the more and three are better than two and two are better than one, right? Number one, stay with the experience for a breath or longer. So when you do start to feel a sense of being loyal to yourself, like you're loyal to another friend, a sense of recognizing how things are hard for you, just like you would recognize how those specific hard things are burdensome for another person. When you're having an experience like that, for example, in terms of self-compassion, stay with it for a breath or longer. Stay with it. That's just five, 10 seconds or more. Second, try to feel it in your body. Get more of a sense of being in your body. That'll naturally kind of turbocharge the emotional learning process, the life learning process. And third, um, focus on what feels good about it. Be aware of what is rewarding or meaningful about it because what that will do is turbocharge the receptivity of your brain so that what the experience you're having at the time will be really flagged and prioritized for long-term storage. Right? To really simplify that, which is already pretty simple, those three things anyone can do. No one can defeat us. No one can stop us from doing those things while we're having our experiences. But the quick summary in just four words is have it, enjoy it. Have the useful experiences, often, usually because you just notice what you're having already. Sometimes create them, like deliberately calling up a feeling of strength when you have to deal with someone who's an adversary or calling up a feeling of gratitude or compassion for various reasons. You're having the experience and then enjoy it. Don't just change the channel. Don't waste it on your brain. Enjoy it. And gradually you'll feel the results. You will become, you will develop, yeah, you will develop trait happiness, trait resilience, trait mindfulness, trait self-compassion, and so forth. What are some of the areas that we can apply this to beyond the ones that you've mentioned that, you know, skills, resources, strengths that you think are important in this um, because many of our listeners are high performers. They've got a ton on their plate, probably more so than maybe the average person who has a nine-to-five type job. And not to take anything away from from people who have the job because in some ways that can be even more demanding because you've got to be in a certain place for a certain amount of time and everything else. But for our high performers, modern world, crazy times, notifications everywhere, uh, what are some of the areas that uh, that they can really develop using this process that would be helpful? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so I'll give you some examples from a conversation I had just yesterday. I, I can't identify the company, but they do very, very high level corporate trainings of various kinds. And we were just talking about some of the things that people want to learn. So one is, how do you give negative or difficult feedback to someone in a skillful way without watering it down. That's a skill, right? 
And that skill involves what it feels like to be you in your own body while you're talking with that person. That is something people can develop and they can use my methods to develop that, for example. Another one is, what do you do when um, <clears throat> you uh, are in a situation in a team where you're competing with other people on your team for who has the best idea or which plant on the product is gonna turn out the best, but you also need to cooperate with all these people you're competing against. How do you maintain a kind of inner balance, an inner stability, so that you can do that? Or another one is, how do you not take work home with you so that it invades your family life and then you start getting blowback from your partner or your kids and so forth? How do you actually do that? Um, to me, these are examples of very, very concrete uh, building blocks of growth, of whatever, whatever we want to call it, emotional intelligence, social intelligence. We're becoming more competent in a way. We're becoming more capable. So these would be examples. Um, I can think of another one, just the, where you started here, aspiration without attachment. What does it feel like to go for it in a really passionate way without getting irritated and frustrated and cranky along the way, which means taking a lot of water over the side on yourself and you're less likely to achieve your goal when you're cranky and irritable, partly because you know other people don't wanna work with you so much. So how do you actually do that, right? What is that mental attitude of aspiration without attachment, making your offering without being too upset about whatever happens? Yeah. That's a state of being you can develop over time. And I, I, I love that idea um, for a couple of reasons, the, the aspiring uh, without attachment. One, because in the book you relate it to a, um, a climbing event, and which is something that we have in yeah. common. So uh, I absolutely relate to that. Um, on many of the difficult, really difficult climbs, it's like, come on, man, just like, you know, this next hold and it's maybe just slightly out of reach and it's like a little tiny little ledge or something. I'm like, just go for it. Like what's the, cause you, you're battling hundreds of thousands of years of evolution of you, of not wanting yeah. to fall and the, the bodily sensations around all of that. And it's like, you know, you, well, most of the time using ropes, um, you know, you're safe here. It's okay. Just, just go for it. Release attachment to the outcome. Just put in yep. your, put in the effort, try your best, but it's okay either way. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And that's been definitely something for me to develop over time because I'm determined to a fault and I've had to learn to give myself a kind of inner freedom and permission to just go for just go for it without being so OCD-ish, you know, compul compulsive and obsessive about how it all turns out. One thing I would say uh, that people should know is that these are qualities we develop over time. And it's okay uh, to bang away at them, to gradually become truly more patient, or for example, more confident about going for it, while at the same time, uh, you know, being more peaceful and still feeling worthy and likable and successful deep down in your core, no matter what actually happens. And uh, so practice really, really helps people. 
I have all these little programs of various kinds on my website. People should check those out, different online programs and so forth that help people keep practicing, keep developing. It's funny, you know, like you're athletic. You understand that if you're to be fit, you've got to work out, right? You got to do things of various kinds, including developing specific muscles or specific, uh, you know, capabilities in your body, like being able to stand on a small ledge. But when it comes to personal development, mental health, becoming happier, wiser, more loving, more loved, confident, stronger, a lot, a lot of people keep looking for that quick mm. fix. And it doesn't work. It's the same thing. You have to practice it. And one thing I've tried to do a lot, and you can see it on my website, is offer really uh, structured ways to practice one to 10 minutes a day and yet still have that really add up over time. Yeah, it's something uh, I was speaking to uh, a family member about yesterday and saying that I think many people still look to the outside world and external experience to determine their happiness and well-being and meaning and fulfillment and everything. And they don't perhaps recognize that there are skills that you can build like so much of it is an internal game and it's so yeah. important. And, and guys, you need to check out this um, Foundations of Wellbeing program that Rick has on offer. It's got a lot of practical uh, takeaways and, and things that you can implement like on a day-to-day basis, simple stuff that will make significant difference uh, over time. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Ramon. It's really true. The book and the program kind of go together and the program is very experiential. Uh, it really, and it really is very, very structured. So it kind of guides you along a path, and, uh, your own path of well, resilient well-being. So yeah, thank you for saying that. What's, uh, I've got this question down here that I need to ask yeah. again, the, the, the busy, modern, crazy world that we live in. What's your go-to practice when things aren't going your way? Have you got one or two? Love that question. Totally. Um, I'm going to answer it in a couple different ways. So one is within 10 to 20 seconds, tick-tock, tick-tock, probably four things are happening. And it's not because I'm special. I think we can all do this in a minute. Number one, notice I'm getting upset. I'm getting irritated. I use the word upset loosely. Irritated, stressed, frazzled. (laughs) Number one, notice it. That's half of it right there. Just notice you're getting rattled, right? Second, uh, bring a quality of compassion to yourself. It hurts. You don't like it. It's disappointing. Um, you know, kind of mobilize a warmth, a warmth, a loyalty, a friendliness toward yourself. Second, uh, really ground in getting on your own side, a kind of muscular response. Like, this sucks, and I want to do something about it. I don't want to just be compassionate for myself. I want to mobilize resources inside. I want to mobilize. I want to activate. I want to, I want to uh, not just stare at that hold that's six inches out of reach and um, have a lot of compassion for myself. I want to figure out how to grab the damn thing, you know? And then fourth, make a plan. What's the plan? What's your plan? So those four things are kind of a first aid kit. And people, because they hear me, they can mark, oh, yeah, tick, you know, this, 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 and that. Um, they're, they're totally my go-tos. That's, what, that's what's happening in me. And I think that's happening in people who are 
um, effective and resourceful when they deal with challenges. Another way of answering your question, also briefly, is you know there's a fundamental go-to in me that I've that I've developed over time. This is the trait that people develop over time of a fundamental core of contentment and love and inner peace. And I access that core fairly soon. You know, let's say I'm in this aggravating thing with my wife and I kind of get through it, or I'm dealing with a business problem. I too have a business like yours. It's complicated, messy, and fast moving with <laughs> notifications and all kinds of stuff all day long. I'm in the real world. I'm not just sitting in a cave somewhere opining. So fairly soon though, I just try to access that underlying sense of these three fundamental things. In whatever way people can access it, a kind of sense of calm, strength inside. Second, a fundamental sense of gratitude, good fortune, happiness, contentment, positive emotion. And last, a fundamental sense of open-heartedness, warm-heartedness, compassion for myself, compassion for others, feeling liked, feeling cared about by others, feeling loved. Uh, those three, peace, contentment, love, summarizing them, are really important to gradually grow inside as a trait. And then you can access them. And when you access the traits you've developed, then it's easy to evoke them as states. And once you're experiencing that state again, let's say of peace, contentment, and love, you can use that to reinforce the trait by marinating in it for a breath or more. Do you have a, like a trigger or a prompt or something that uh, you have so that you continue to practice these? Like, you know, every time I meet a person, um, that's my prompt for uh, eliciting this state or, or something. Yeah. Do you have something like that? Yeah. Um, well, I've been doing this a long time. You know, that's just true. So it's a little bit like someone who uh, is a very experienced golfer or tennis player, right? If you were to ask them, so what do you <laughs> do? Well, it's yeah. pretty like, well, it's pretty natural at this point. So I want to, yeah. and again, I'm not bragging. It's more like, you know, if, if someone's been golfing for 40 years reasonably well, you know, ho hopefully they've learned something along the way. You know, I've been doing mental health and self and, you know, personal growth for 40 plus years. So I, you know, there ought to be something about it. Uh, but all that said, there are a couple of things I try to keep in mind. One is that if I'm getting mad at other people, that's bad for me. That's a go-to. I remember that. If I'm getting caught up in helpless outrage about American politics, that's bad for me. If I'm getting irritable with my wife or my, my kids, that's bad for me. And so I try to remember that one. Another one I remember, you know, it's sounds so cliched, but it's profoundly true. Everything matters and nothing matters. Mm. You know? Um, and there's this line from T.S. Eliot. I'm not a big poetry guy, but every so often there are these lines that just cut right through. And there's this line from his poem, it's Ash Wednesday, has sort of a spiritual aspect to it if you, if you like. You don't, you don't need to hear it that way. The line is, teach us to care and not to care. That's kind of it. To 
and I, and I think we see this in the people who are peak performers in business. And also we see this in people who are the most kind of evolved, wisest, even saintly. It's that they're both very engaged and they're moved in their heart by, by, by terrible things. You know, they feel it. It's not all happy, smiley BS. On the one hand, they're engaged. They're engaged. While at the same time, they recognize the emptiness of, what, of all action, the transience of everything, the ways in which what's happening here on planet Earth is just a blip in the nearly 14 billion years of the universe with about 2 trillion galaxies, <laughs> each one of which is like more or less like ours with about 100 billion stars with current estimates of billions, billions and billions of planets, including millions of rocky Earth-like planets like our own, some of which have got to have life on it, right? You just realize it's so big, it's so vast, you know, but it's funny, you know, just the, the Neil Young line, rocking in the free world. Meanwhile, rocking in the free world, speaking truth to power and not going down without a fight. That's me. Mm. And then since you're letting me rant here, I'll give you one last poetry, <laughs> poetry rant from Dylan Thomas. Uh, this fabulous line. Uh, I first saw it sitting on his tombstone in Westminster Cathedral. I was going to England with my family and we bopped around and suddenly I see it and I'm like, wow. You know, and this is from his poem, people can find, check it out, Fern Hill. And the line is, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. Right there. Green and dying, though I sang in my chains like Transcending, mm -hmm. much as the sea trans, you know, moves through the chains, you know, the anchor chains. Um, though I sang in my chains like the sea, and I try to re, I try to remember this way of being in a feeling way in my body, sometimes conceptually too, as I go through my day. Mm. I, I think one of the things that <laughs> that you've mentioned a couple of times is. I'm a real guy in the real world. I've got a messy business and all these sorts of things. And I just, I, I, I do want to touch on that for a moment because I think it's so important for people that think that well-being is this, oh, I'm just going to sit around all day and meditate and om and, you know, life's yeah. going to be real chill. Like that's, and and, you know, meditation is a part of this, but this is about, real world practical things that we can use in the the day-to-day -day life that we experience right 100 percent. and uh <clears throat> small point which is that i've spoken with you know monastics monks and nuns and they'll be the first to tell you that life in the monastery as it were including dealing with other people uh, can be aggravating. There can be friction, <laughs> like, you know, on the one hand, but you're certainly right. Uh, you're totally right. And I think bottom line is, let's say you live 80 years. I should know the number, but I mean, there's something like 25,000 minutes that we're awake in those 80 years. I'm going to go do the math later to get it really right, but it's about that. And question is, bottom line, what are they like? 
for you. What are those minutes of your life like? These precious minutes and every single one, once it's doled out, it's gone. You'll never get it back. It's like we were all, in effect, born with a bag of jewels. And every minute, mm. we throw one of them over our shoulder, jewel after jewel after jewel. And so for me, it's really quite poignant. And I think a lot of people, honestly, when they move into the second half of their life or the last third or tenth of their life, there's a real quality of kind of despair and disappointment. Like they look around and they go, that was it? You know, I spent my life like that, getting mad at them, worrying about this, drinking too much, watching way too much TV. Worrying about insignificant shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, caught up in the shit of it. and, And also letting other people push me around. Letting them invade my mind, letting them give in, get into my head, giving them, you know, rent-free space inside my own head, right? Uh, and I say, no, no, this is a very precious life. Um, and that motivates me as well. And I think it's very important for people. And, and also to realize that it's a matter of personal autonomy. Most people work inside some kind of an organization. And with rare exceptions, at the end of the day, that organization and the people who run it and the people who own it care more about organizational results than the actual experiences of the people there. And that's the truth of it. So, and then we have all those other things, you know, the people in our lives who, you know, get off on intimidating us or making us feel bad or keep trying to make us do things that they think are good for us, even though we don't think they're good for us. And I think part of what we're talking about is retaining a scruffy autonomy that says, no, 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 no. I want to protect what it's like to be me and not let other people and interruptions, notifications. Uh, Why give them so much power? Why let them interrupt you so much? Why let them derail your concentration or what you want to focus on or your own productivity? Getting interrupted all the time is not good for productivity, especially if you want to generate anything good that takes more than you know, 10 minutes of thought. Uh, so for me, the, you know, it's important, in, including for people in the business world, to really ask themselves, are you a puppet? Are you, or are you pulling your own strings? And take charge of those strings. Lovely. We are coming to the end of the show. Any final thoughts for our listeners? One uh, apology for ranting, and hopefully it's okay, <laughs> or at least of some value. Man, oh man, final thoughts. Well, I've got my new book coming out. We'll talk more about it. Yes, Neurodharma. It's the coolest, deepest material I know from the world's great wisdom traditions, combined with the coolest, most out there, eye popping brain science. We'll geek out on that. <laughs> yeah, and then applied to how you can help yourself every day. So that that material really, really jacks me up. I'm really psyched about it. I guess if I were to, here's the thing, I'll tell you one thing. I've asked myself lately a question, which is, if you could teach people one thing, what would you teach them? You know, and then you think about your values, and, you know, and your, whether it's your family or just on the planet altogether in terms of this point of human history, you could teach people one thing, what would be the thing you would teach them? There's no right answer, there's just each person's answer. 
I could tell you what my answer would be. Please. I, yeah, I would teach people how to learn. Mm. How to learn. Because that's the superpower of superpowers. The least of which is to learn the multiplication tables or somebody else's phone number. The most of which is to learn how to be strong and happy, loving and wise. That's what we really need to learn. And then once you know how to learn, then you can apply that to any what you want to learn, whether it's a very specific and understandable business application or skill or something more general, like acquiring greater trait mindfulness or trait gratitude or trait self-compassion over time. But that's the one thing I would do. So my invitation to people is, uh, what's your answer to the question of what would you teach people if you had one thing to teach them? And second, if you find value in my own answer to that question, how to learn, you know, what can you do today to help yourself be a more competent learner, a more skillful, a more effective learner uh, who's also more dedicated to learning and growing every day? Beautiful. Guys, I will put the links in the show notes where you can check out the program, you can check out the book, you can go to Rick's website. There's a ton of resources there. Rick, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to speak with you again. Ramon, you're great, really. One of the best to talk with. You've curated this fantastic collection of offerings. Very solid, very, really good. And it's an honor to be on your show. And, and I wish everyone well has been listening. Thank you. And I look forward to um, speaking with you again when the new book comes out. Yep, definitely. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review, and of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon. Bye.